At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And good morning, world. Today we are rolling live with Steph Collada. Did I, I said it wrong already, didn't I? No, that was good. Oh, okay, good. I hate screwing that up. But uh, Steph is the founder of Veteran Legislative Voice, and uh, really interesting stuff. I'm so glad to have you on here today, and I'm very curious about where this is all going to go. And we're wearing matching hoodies, which is cool. All right. Uh, Steph, what was the impetus for you to start veteran, Veterans Legislative Voice? Why did you do that? That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a lot, long story, but it really came up with all the mist of the Vanessa Guillen tragedy and scandal. Um, everybody was wanting to really make change, legislative change with Congress and because everybody was sharing their stories with hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen. And since a few of our house representatives and a few of our senators decided to put in a bill to strengthen the military justice system and protect the veterans victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault, domestic violence and child sex crimes, they put a, together a bill a couple bills actually and everybody wanted to get involved but they didn't know how um so what i did was come up with a script give people information of how to contact your senators congress people how to find out who they are um and pretty much how important it is for them to share their story and push for the policy they believe should be passed so tell me a little bit about that case what happened so, um, for anybody that doesn't know, Vanessa Guillen went missing in April of last year. Um, her family members were the ones that really have been pushing that she just didn't go AWOL. Because what happens a lot of times with the U.S. Army specifically, if someone goes missing in the first 24 or 48 hours, they don't list them as missing. They don't look for them. They assume they're AWOL. So when anyone goes missing, military, civilian, the first 48 hours is the most important time frame to find them. The longer it goes, the less likely they're going to find them. Um, and that called it basically a lot of spotlight and review over how the military handles AWOLs. First, uh, AWL, absent without leave, for anybody that doesn't know, um, that counts for if you miss formation, if you decide not to move with the unit when they have to go on a mission, or to stop showing up to duty. And the thing is, is that when they started looking for Vanessa Guillen, of course, what another thing that came up was that she was sexually harassed by a number, a few of the personnel within her unit. It also called spotlight to the other people that went missing on Fort Hood. And while they were looking for Vanessa Guillen, um, more specifically her body, is by the time that they started looking, they found other service members that were also missing, and they found their bodies. 
And it's very unfortunate. It's very sad, but it brings more spotlight of what changes the military needs to make to protect their people and also honor them. Because if they die, a few of the people, Wendell Mirandez, he had went AWOL. His parents didn't collect any of the benefits they disposed, they're supposed to get because he went AWOL. And so when they found his body, they had to do the autopsy to make sure that he died not long after or like right when he went missing. So then his record would be unblemished and cleared and then get a military funeral. So there's a lot of negative reactions and negative feelings on how the military handles their troops. When you mistreat your own, that creates such a sense of betrayal. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, yeah. we're we're all told the same thing. Doesn't matter which military that you're in, U.S. Army. It just doesn't matter. It's always the same. It's like, hey, we're a team. We're a family. We leave no one behind, and we got your back. And then when that turns out to not be true, that is a moral injury like no other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I love that you said moral injury because that's really been coming up lately. Um, I mean, I've I actually had my sexual assault response coordinator course. It's victim advocacy course on forehood. And the running joke there is that that's where they have all the demonstrators or the best cases and examples of sexual harassment, sexual assault cases. Um, They had found a um, SARC that had a prostitution ring and using the victims. What's a SARC? uh, Sorry, sexual assault response coordinator. Um, They are the leader of the victim advocates and the sexual assault response people that's supposed to support them within a unit. You go to a victim advocate to make a report. The sexual assault response coordinators basically manage the victim advocates. They're usually at battalion or brigade and higher. Um, It's brigade for army reserve and guard battalion and higher for active duty. And, they basically make sure that the victim advocates are doing what they're supposed to be doing, training and everything. So having somebody taking advantage of that position is very wrong and very sickening for a lot of people and for it happening for so long. Cause the guy, I think he was either at E seven Sergeant first class or E eight master Sergeant. I can't remember. It's one of those two. So he probably didn't start doing his crimes, committing his crimes at E78. He started much earlier. Yeah. And there's there's a habit, there's a there there's some sort of trail that happens and a lot of times it doesn't get noticed until much later. Well, like any other predator, like any child molester, uh, put himself in a position where he could do the thing that he wants to do. You know, uh, child molesters are forever putting themselves in positions where they have access to kids. Um, yeah. that's why they are the, the coaches or the priest or whatever gives them access to kids so that um, they can do their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so diabolical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so veteran legislative voice also kind of blossomed from that. I mean, I've started focusing on things outside of just the sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military, Um, We started focusing on other things that veterans need, that um, military people need. Um, 
the Brandon Act is something that I helped with um, to pass in the um, in one of the congressional bills, and that bill is to lay a foundation to protect those that need mental health treatment. To initiate it, it's just like the Miranda rights. You know, they read your Miranda rights in the U.S., uh, everything that you're supposed to know before they really take you into custody or as they are taking you to custody. It's you initiate this act called the Brandon Act so that you can be protected when you go get your treatment. And this is because of Brandon Casarda in a Navy air squadron in Norfolk. He died by suicide um, because of the toxic environment and his toxic leaders. And he tried so hard to fix the situation to let people know, but they were the command was not doing a damn thing. And one of the biggest things that really stuck with me was that the command climate survey that they have at, for the military, for the U.S., command climate surveys are supposed to happen within six months of a new commander, I think another time during, and then another time after. So it's about every year or two you get a command climate survey and you can customize the type of questions and one of the questions on this unit was would going to mental health treatment negatively affect your career 62 percent of the units said yes yeah i'm surprised it was not higher actually yeah um I'm also doing another study and I'm trying to work with other people that are still in to find out how truthful people are to those command climate surveys. It, they're notorious for people to lie about it because they're also afraid of how they can figure out who answered what. So there's a lot of lack of trust there. Um, like for me, when I was an instructor, I was the only white female NCO. Uh, so when I, I would make a complaint on the survey or any other thing that also included my demographics. I was worried that I would then be targeted and retaliated. So I was retaliated against for going through the chain of command and then using the open door policy for the brigade sergeant major. And they said, I jumped the chain of command. I'm like, look, I looked, I went to you guys first. So those type of things, I just, I couldn't say anything while I was in. It is an interesting, um, as a reservist, you have a very interesting career behind you. And uh, most, most recently being a readiness analyst for the last few years. Um, How ready is the military uh, to, to deal with uh, Mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder in their veterans? It's getting better mm-hmm. um, than I'll say that because when I first started going for mental health treatment, I only told my supervisor and that was our unspoken agreement. And to everybody else, I was going for dental treatments. And that part started because we were in a suicide prevention class two months after my returning from my deployment and I did a stateside tour. My deployment was in Kuwait, and I dealt with battle-damaged equipment. I was the last person to check them, and they weren't always clean. And then when I transitioned back to the States, I was sexually assaulted by somebody I trusted while I was deployed. 
And so I was going through a lot of emotional and mental turmoil and I couldn't see it until I went to that suicide prevention class. And it was one of those classes, I've never seen it again, but it was amazing. It's, um, you know, those books, the choose your own adventure books that they had back in the eighties and seventies and eighties, because at the bottom of the page, you have a choice, you, you know, go down the trail, go to page, you know, 67, uh, flip the coin, go to page 45, those type of things. Well, we, there was a suicide prevention class that included that. Um, and it was video, it was interactive. Um, and it was amazing. They also, um, gave us brochures and it had seven different symptoms of somebody going through the mental and emotional stress that is basically going down the trail of becoming suicidal. They said having two or three of those symptoms out of seven, you're in the danger zone. I had five out of seven. Yeah. The only things I had didn't have was basically I wasn't making a plan and I wasn't suicide, suicidal at that moment. I was later, but at that moment I didn't want to die, but I had everything else. Do you remember what so, those, um, signs were can you rattle off a few of them yeah um it's you have trouble sleeping you um feel like everybody's better off without you which is not suicidal um not explicitly that but um i think it's you wish you could not wake up and you're very distant from everybody you're drawing that distance and that line between people. Mm. I can't remember another one, but yeah, that's those are uh, depression symptoms in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was. And so I did my stateside tour in Charleston. And so, which is weird because people don't think there's any uh, army people in Charleston. Um, I think they're in Columbia, which is Fort Jackson. I was a shiploader or ship stow planner. Um, the army actually loads ships. They have the most equipment and then we contract out the merchant Marine ships to load. And they're as wide as aircraft carrier, but the size. Well, it makes sense that, that, that even in the yeah. Navy, the army's doing the work. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I did load a Navy ship a few times <laughs> and Navy equipment. Um, so there's such yeah, a thing as an army ship. Oh, yeah, there's plenty. Um, there's, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I know. It's, I know. it's a ship, but it's an army ship. What the hell are you yeah. talking about? If it's yeah, a boat, that's about, a baby. There's about three ar- three different types of army ships. The rest we use are merchant marine. But, okay. yeah, they're, most of them have the big ramps so they can actually beach on the sand on the shore, bring the back, ramp back up, and then drive out. So, um yeah. <laughs> so I would plan the ship loads and the stow planning of the ship. It's kind of like um, billion dollar Tetris, trying okay. to figure out where all the equipment goes, the weight and everything. Because four Abrams tanks can make a ship tilt or list. Uh, yeah, right. they're a little heavy. <laughs> yeah. I have a giant ship, though, but it is. it only takes four to move them. So... Those type of things was what I did. And, of course, I had T&J because of the stress of it. Um, Yeah, and so I did a stateside tour in Charleston, and 
uh, went up and down the eastern seaboard loading out our active duty units. So the 10th Mountain, the 3rd ID, 82nd, I went and did all of those. I worked in Philly, Charleston, Norfolk, and Savannah. So why is it considered a tour if it's domestic? Because I'm activated still for a year. Um, they use the same... Um, oh, so uh, if, you, if, if you're reg force, uh, that, that wouldn't be the same, right? No. Okay, so tour. so a tour means uh, as a reservist, uh, it's a it's a contract deployment or okay. deployment. Yeah. Okay, makes yeah, sense. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I had um, almost three years of ongoing deployment time, all in one stint. So that was fun. Uh, thankfully, I was able to get treatment while I was <coughs> stateside for my mental health and a range of other things, but it was really great. So that's one of the reasons why my VA disability is decent is because I barely got seen when I was deployed, but when I was stateside, I really made sure I got seen and taken care of. So what's an example right now of what Veterans Legislative Voice is up to? Do you have any projects on the go right now? or? Um, actually, I am going to be working on basically the dental, dental health care Act that we've been trying to work on. Uh, there's a coalition out of Chicago, and they've really been trying to push for dental care for veterans in the U.S. Um, they, like 99% of the veterans, do not have any dental care. The only way to get it is if you have a dental disability, and it's got to be serious because there's so many things that would um, restrict them. And the other way is to either be 100% or get the individual and employability, which means you're paid at 100%. And that's it. Everything else is on your own. And dental hygiene is so vital. I mean, it it affects your cardiovascular. It affects your immune system. Um, if you have bad teeth and an infection sets in, it can actually spread to your bones and other conditions. A friend of mine, he has bad teeth. He got real sick a couple of months ago and he just thought it was a cold and, you know, never got seen because he had a fever for two, three months, never got seen. Finally got himself MRI because his back was hurting. They found a bone infection, osteomyelitis and discitis, and it came from his teeth. Hmm. That can actually kill somebody. Um, it greatly affects their spine. So he's probably going to need surgery in the future to correct because when the disc and the bones start eating away because of the infection, it will start pressing on those nerves that's happening between the bones and the vertebrae. It's not one of those things that you really, that most people yeah. would, re- would really connect the dots on that. When somebody's got yeah. uh, a bad dental, I mean, all I'm thinking is, well, if you might be losing weight if you're having trouble heat, eating or it's, you know, yeah. but it doesn't, uh, it didn't really occur to me and it should have because, um, uh, I had heart surgery in 99 and, and ever since then, uh, if I have an oral infection, that could be a big problem for me because uh, it can go to the heart, which is weird. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, that, that, that is a big deal. So what's next for veterans legislative voice? We're going to be working on that and we're going to try to get, um, Right now, most of the Congress people that support the bill are just in the Chicago, Illinois area, in the tri- in the states around it. So we're trying to 
um, widened that to get more Congress people interested in trying to get onto it. And then our backup would be getting it onto next year's NDEA. NDAA is the National Defense Authorization Act, and it's required every year. And it basically funds the military, Department of Defense, and the Veterans Affairs. And a lot of stuff that's in the NDEA um, also affects it. The big thing that passed last year for the veterans uh, was the Deborah Sampson Act, which is strictly just for supporting women's vet- veterans' issues. Um, making sure that they have the proper equipment, the proper manning for for vet- women veterans in the hospital, um, they're more more likely to be sent out on the economy on community care for their own issues because um, ultrasounds of those type of tools are not very common. Uh, they don't have the monogamy. Excuse me, I can't pronounce it, but it's the scanner for the breast cancer. Okay, Ma- <laughs> mammogram. That's it. There you go. Um, they um, those are not usually readily available in the VA. Um, they're also not trained to do MRIs um, on the breast, which is also something that they try to do to get a 3D imaging of what's going on. Um, there's a bunch of things that that bill just really threw in support. We're going to see it early next year um, because most bills, congressional bills, um, they become uh, activated or put in place within a year of the bill being approved. So it, it'll take some time. Tell me, you are one busy lady. (laughs) You are just a (laughs) go-getter. If this wasn't enough, you're also involved with the the Military Women's Coalition. Uh, Tell me about that organization. Um, It is a coalition of different, basically, women veterans organizations. Um, They don't necessarily have to do with the legislative um, side, but that is our focus, to make changes. They're specialists in their own field. So um, Paige Jenkins has Red Feather Ranch, and that's actually a kind of like a retreat ranch for uh, women veterans. Um, Let's see, Amy Frank is, uh, she runs Never Alone. And that is an organization that helps sexual assault and sexual harassment victims, survivors, um, going through their process. Um, They assist on how to uh, basically put in the reports, how to protect themselves, those type of things. Because a lot of times we can't trust the victim advocates or uh, sexual assault response coordinators themselves, like we said earlier. Yeah. Uh, The Pink Berets, they have all these different therapy sessions. The pink berets. Um, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. They have therapy sessions. They do art therapy. They do yoga. Um, Combat sexual assault also does yoga because Lindsay Knapp is a certified uh, yoga instructor. So she does that towards more of a mental health thing in somebody. And then they do different ones for like chronic pain and many different exercises for that. i I do yin yoga personally because that's usually the best with my issues. Uh, yin yoga is on the floor. You don't do much standing or on your hands and knees. It's all on the floor and it's extended poses um, up to three minutes. Sometimes I do five for some of the poses. So those things really help when you have chronic musculoskeletal issues. Um, yoga is one of those things that... Uh, uh, if people haven't done it, if they don't understand it, they tend to poo-poo it, and which is unfortunate. 
But um, what? When did you start with uh, the yoga, and how has it been affecting you? I've been doing yoga for at least a decade. Um, it's been affecting me great. I used to do it more for uh, the stamina because back when I could do all of the other poses, uh, when I wasn't, my body wasn't so broken, I could do really well with that. Um, and it really opened up your feeling within your chest. That's what I feel like. You feel lighter when you do your exercises and your poses. Um, when I was a staff sergeant, a platoon sergeant for a company, we had lost two soldiers, but the first soldier we lost, I had to be the acting first sergeant for the memorial service that weekend. And it was a really rough one. It was a young guy who's 24 and he had just gotten his act together because he became kind of a shammer (laughs) and somebody that just didn't care about trying to get things done or goals and tasks. And he had just turned around, passed his PT test, passed a bunch of tests and he celebrated and he passed passed that weekend so the very next weekend i had to be the first sergeant and there's a lot of traditions there um the entire unit shows up to wherever they do it we did it in a church um and then we would do the roll call so you call two people that are present and they stand up and say present and then you and then they sit back down and then you call the service member that passed and you do it three times. You do it by the rank and their last name, their rank first and last name. And sorry. And then their rank, I think in even the middle, but then um, they would just do it again and nothing. You just hear silence. And that was probably the craziest feeling I've ever felt. And then they play taps. You, we had, we actually found a bugler that could do it. And so he was on the other side of the church and he started and my heart was pounding. It was the craziest feeling. And a lot of people went through a lot of emotional stress. Um, <laughs> bless you. Thank you. The squad leader, the squad leader was having a very rough time. Um, he was like his best friend. And we did that service in the morning. We broke everybody up, sent them pretty much to lunch, have a breather, get some something to eat, and come back. And then on one o'clock, I had everybody in the drill hall, and we had we had all these big athletic pads or floor <laughs> floor pads that most people see it for gymnastics. We would use it for sit ups and things. I had those out, and I put everybody through yoga a very nice, gentle, mostly sun salutations, and then had them do their um, pose on the floor. Uh, It's called the corpse pose. Terrible name for this situation (laughs) then, but uh, you basically lay flat on the ground. You put your arms up and your legs out, and you just try to relax and focus on your breathing. I had at least 10 soldiers fall asleep, and I let them stay there at least for 10, 15 minutes just to get a good cat nap in. And they felt so good after that. They said it was the best sleep they had in weeks. Um, yeah, I really love yoga. And I got a lot of people interested in it after that session. So it was good. Steph, I'm going to have um, uh, links to the your, your websites that you sent me in the show notes for people to find you. 
at um, what has been the have there been good supporters for you? Like, is the American Legion behind what you're doing? Do, do you have allies? I do. Um, mostly it's Protector Defenders is the organization. They're also in the coalition, but they're one of the bigger organizations in our co- coalition. Protector Defenders are the ones that have been really been the largest voice other than the typical, you know, VSO, um, FD, uh, VFW and DAV and American Legion protector defenders is specifically for the victims and the survivors. And one of them that runs it, Don Christensen, he used to be a JAG lawyer. He's a retired JAG lawyer. And so he knows all the military justice stuff and he's fighting for all those changes. Um, but yeah, there was lots of support. Um, last year when I started doing the veterans legislative voice, I went through all of the, Department of Defense Sexual Assault Prevention Response Program reports. So every year they do different reports. Um, They will have a survey, like a command climate survey, ask um, a certain sample of population, you know, how have they been sexually assaulted? Have they been sexually harassed and different things? They will also compare it to the numbers that they have for people that actually reported and going through the military justice uh, system. And I'm a math nerd, uh, more statistics nerd when it comes to that those type of reports. I, I loved it when I was working for the Army Reserve because uh, I did that a lot with our metrics. Um, so I found that the, um, the DOD doesn't do research for the genders of how likely they would report, how likely it would it be for men to report out of the suspected estimated... Um, number of people that have been sexually assaulted. They also never did the prevalence of reporting sexual harassment compared to how many that's happening. So I did the math, (laughs) compared it to the total numbers that they have, and I did all the little nerdy stuff and found that 1% of all people that are sexually harassed in 2018 actually reported their sexual harassment. Um, The numbers are much worse for men, um, one year, I think it was 2012, 0.99% of all men that were sexually assaulted reported their rape, sexual assault. It's incredibly low. The DOD doesn't track that. Um, And so if I sent that in through the channels um, and Jackie Spear, Representative Jackie Spear, she's the chairman of the um, House Armed, Armed Forces Committee for the Personnel. And she actually used those statistics in some of the breast conferences that they had um, to push for the bills. And that was really cool. Um, so that to me, that was my favorite thing that I've done now for at least veterans legislative voice. It is unfortunate that there needs to be a veterans legislative voice. But uh, in every country, uh, <laughs> certainly in Canada and certainly in the States, uh, we find that veterans have to fight to get their due, just to Mm -hmm. be compensated for what should not even be a question. And um, our current prime minister, uh, not overly popular in the veteran community, but um, uh, the people that did vote for him uh, the first time, because he said, you'll never uh, have to fight your own government. Veterans will never have to fight their own government in court. Well, that was a lie. (laughs) <laughs> there's all we kinds of yeah, there's there's lots uh 
of court cases going on where just to uh, have just to be looked after. Yeah, you know, oh, if, you bro- if, if you break it, you bought it, man. It, yeah. um, um, it is it does it change from administration to administration uh, for you? Like you've been you, you're in the reserves a long time, like north yeah. north 15 of years. fifteen years, and yeah. uh, ha- is how veterans are treated? Does, have you seen it change from administration to administration, or does yes. it really matter? I'm- well, okay, so I wasn't a full-blooded, full veteran because for reservists, um, you have to be deployed or on active duty orders to be called a veteran for reserve and guard. Um, so that does mean a deployment. They don't count your training time as active duty. Um, so I wasn't a full veteran until Obama got elected in. Um, I'm so glad I was deployed during that because uh, my family was 50-50 split on the political parties. So I was really glad I got to stay in Kuwait during Thanksgiving. Um, so I, did, I could avoid that type of situation. Um, apparently they spent uh, Thanksgiving in separate rooms of the house. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, and then, um, let's see, between Obama and Trump, because I've only had two presidents while I was in, um, and President Obama had to deal with the backlog. Um, I filed my veterans disability um, packet in 2012. I didn't get a br- approved into 2014. I waited about 18 months from filing to awarding all of my ratings. And it's probably still the longest that most people have gotten. I know a lot of people are complaining about the backlog we have right now, but it wasn't as bad as, <laughs> as what we had. Um, but the thing is, is that after that happened and then president Obama did the community care or I'm trying to remember what they called it before that. Um, but basically we can go out on the economy if we couldn't get an appointment for something within 30 days. But the thing is, is that it also depends on the economy and the community that you're in, um, because sometimes you can't get in within 30 days, even on the civilian side, sometimes in some areas. Um, I was in Washington State for most of it, and I had a hard time trying to find um, doctors or other medical professionals to fill my requirements within the time frame in that area. It was rough. Um, so I usually just depended on them. Bless you. Thanks. Uh, you're good. <laughs> you're all right. Um, uh, with President Trump, I had been working as a DOD civilian for the Army Reserves. I was a military technician. Um, I've worked everywhere from battalion to two-star divisions. Uh, that's where the readiness al- analyst position came from, for everybody's information, because uh, there is no MOS for that. Um, but, uh, trying to put this in the right way. When we had president Trump, we had a a lot of close calls with certain countries. And so when I worked for the engineer commands, combat engineers are usually the ones that lead the way. And then the infantry goes behind them because, uh, combat engineers clear the roads, um, and clears basically buildings to make sure that there's no explosives, no booby traps, no IEDs, those type of things. Um, and then the infantry comes. So 
the command I was working for, they would have gone first if a war started uh, or operation because you need Congress to, to declare war, but you don't really need that anymore for the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of close calls. We spent a lot of time trying to get our units up to that readiness level that they need for the president that was getting very close to pushing the button. And it was very stressful. (laughs) I spent so much overtime (laughs) trying to do that. And it was very frustrating. So to me, President Trump really wasn't the most efficient president when it comes to the armed forces. Um, With a few other things that's happened, it was really stressful. Um, We spent much more money than we did when we were under Obama, at least on my side. We spent so much more money under President Trump. Um, but I will say I'm not sure about the veteran side of where it would be Obama and where it would be Trump because like I said earlier with congressional bills it takes a year the agencies have a year to put things in place for what became law so you have that lag time happening and so when the uh, treatment numbers were getting better and the wait time was getting better under President Trump, a lot of it was because of what President Obama did, because it takes that long to fix. Yeah, there's a lag. Um, Yeah, so it's kind of hard to try to really, for a lot of people to understand and argue for who was better. Um, I will also say, and I've tried to be, I'm trying to be as bipartisan as possible whenever I do my stuff. Um, Cause I came from a Republican family. I'm now a moderate Democrat, but I try to keep it with um, both eyes, both parties in mind, or even all parties in mind. Um, but I have found that Democrats submit more congressional bills for veterans and military. They are more effective than what the Republicans submit because I study all of them. I get an alert and I try to keep track of all the congressional bills that get submitted for veterans and military. Uh, The more notorious Republicans submit bills for things that are already in place, um, which is really frustrating. Um, So why did you spend the time for that is one of the things that I get very frustrated. It's redundant. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, Senator Whitaker, Roger Whitaker's put in a congressional bill to allow veterans and Gold Star families to have uh, national parks free uh, access, get a free pass, annual pass to all national parks. We already have that. <laughs> yeah, well, they got to justify their existence sometimes. So, you know, they, they write a bill just to make a bill, and um, that that's how they – it's kind of their scorecard as in politics. It's like, look, I, I, uh, I sponsored eight bills. Look at me go. Eight redundant bills yeah. that, uh, or eight bad bills, yeah. but they're eight bills. And, yeah. and that, that's how they, they keep score. So that's why they do that. I do want to say, though, I do defend a few of the Republicans because while I do not like some of their policies on things or their, uh, their perspectives on things. They do try to help on bipartisan bills. So I'm not a huge fan of Senator Marco Rubio. I'm from Florida. So that's one of our senators. And, but he went in with uh, Senator Gillibrand, which is a very staunch Democrat. She's very over 
on the left side, on the progressive left, but not extreme. And they worked together to put in a burn pits bill. Um, and it actually is one of the more effective bills. Sadly, it's not, um, hasn't gone anywhere, but it is one of the better ones. And that's another one I would be focusing on. Burn pits are one of, one of the topics that uh, people just can't really grasp <laughs> unless they've seen yeah. one or smelt one, which is even better. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, explain what a burn pit is. Okay, so... I fault burn pits are the origin of the field sanitation regulations. The military, way back when, they believed that anything that would be trash needs to be burned, basically disposed of. When you're in very austere environments, um, third world country-like settings and environments like Iraq and Afghanistan, there's no dumpster truck coming to pick up your trash uh, on every corner. Um, those things just don't happen in majority of those locations. So they will burn the equipment or the, you know, food, spoils, different things that they just can't use or recycle. One of the things I point out is that the old field sanitation um, regulations were never updated for the current equipment we use, for the ter- for the technology and for the everything because the metals have changed. The structures of things have changed. Well, they started burning uh, broken computers and other equipment with the same metals and plastics. What happens is when you put those in a burn pit, they become microscopic little shards and get into the air and mix up with sandstorms and stuff. Um, the, mo- the best example of, are, of victims of burn pits are those that have lung conditions. of all people that were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan filed a complaint or filed a VA claim for respiratory issues. I mean, most common is rhinitis and uh, sinusitis and asthma, which the the VA has allowed for that to be presumptive. A lot of people have lung cancer and nodules within their lungs. Um, One service member, they... um, they biopsied his lung, took a piece of his lung out, and Walter Reed turned off the light and shone a flashlight on him. The inside of his lungs basically lit up like the night sky. All those little metal shards reflected back. It was a Christmas tree on the inside. Yes. Um, so those type of things, it really changes um, the person's body. Um, another thing that I try to keep included with the burn pits is um, BPA. BPA is a um, chemical that comes out of certain water bottles that happen uh, to be sitting out in the sun. And everybody was affected by this. I mean, it happened in the States, it happened everywhere. But the thing is, is that I like to point out that the armed forces really got hit for that because the way they store their water for a majority of the bases in Iraq and Afghanistan, Kuwait, are pallets of water sitting out in the sun, and we take the bottled water and drink that. Um, I remember some pallets would sit out there for at least two months in the hot sun, and I don't know how long it sat in the warehouses. And for those that have never been to Kuwait, the hottest temperature I saw in a reading one day was 140. That's hot. You're frying eggs (laughs) hot. Yeah, and um, it's not a dry heat either because it's on the Gulf, the Persian Gulf. 
So you have the 90% humidity, 140 degrees. And when the wind blows, it's not like, you know, a nice cool wind. It's like a hairdryer on you. It's not great at all. It's like you open up the oven when it's 400 degrees and you feel that rush of heat. Sounds like Houston in July. Yes. (laughs) It's not great. Um, I went back to the States uh, and I'm from Florida and I went to Florida and Charleston stuff and I hated the heat, the humid heat for the longest time. There's a reason why I moved to Washington state for a while. It's because I just couldn't get away from that feeling. It wasn't Kuwait. And, and BPA, they've actually connected that with breast cancer. No, the, the, the uh, women. well, they've, they've connected it with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why on water bottles now it, it says, it brags about being BPA free, but, um, <laughs> and it's something that the FDA knew about for the longest time and did absolutely nothing about. So, uh, we've all been mm-hmm. poisoned by BPA. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. The, um, yeah. oh, what else was I going to say? Before we wrapped up here, I don't know. Lost it. It's gone. Uh, actually, with breast cancer, um, Walter Reed also found that women are forty times four times more likely. Us f- women veterans are four times more likely to have breast cancer than civilian women. And majority That's of those women that gets, yeah, majority of the women that have gotten this breast cancer don't have the gene, don't have it in their family, and the only connector is the military. It's very rough. Uh, Many women uh, advocates that I work with, we have been pushing for um, the military to start doing a, like a baseline uh, mammogram and the MRI, all the imaging you can on the breasts when they come in the military and then do it every so often. So that way you can have a long-term study. Um, And we've been really been pushing for that. Um, well, it could be like we have public health in Canada, so you get mm-hmm. cancer, at least it doesn't bankrupt you. If you don't have medical yeah. coverage, um, like, so is that uh, part of the push so that if you get mm-hmm. uh, diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, military is going to pay for it? Yes. The push is also for those that the thing is, is that with burn pits and the other toxic exposures, Majority of the time, they're not diagnosed with those conditions until after they're out of the military. Oh, yeah. So it's very difficult to get the service connection, them to admit, okay, this happened from service. Well, then they act like an insurance company instead of a service provider. Yeah. And so um, a lot of times you have to fight for it. So when I talk about presumptives, it's those conditions that they admit they believe is connected to service. So that's one of the things that we've been fighting for specifically conditions especially cancers to be included as presumptives the, the burn people, the burn pits were for feces as well wasn't it and animal yeah. dead animals as oh yeah well. good times um, yeah i had a marine friend that he was actually one of the people that would stir it oh yeah um if people remember hurt locker um for yeah. that uh, movie um and so he actually started to have issues with his eyes and the chemicals that had came out from what he was stirring was actually affecting his, his eyes. Um, so it was kind of like cataracts is what his condition was. I can't remember the actual name of it, but it's kind of like a chemical induced cataracts. And it was really rough. He had to get a lot of exemptions just to stay in the military. He had to change his MOS. Uh, so it's rough. It's not easy. Um, and so I, 
I hope his condition doesn't get worse because that's really um, disabling is to lose your sight and it's scary. It is. And uh, Steph, I'm going to put a pin in it right there, but um, no, it's so good. Thank you for the incredible work that you're doing. Thank you for your continued service. Uh, It is so critical and also demoralizing that it has to be done (laughs) because the, the, the common thread is it doesn't matter what military you're in, but uh, we, although the help is there, um, I, I, I'm a beneficiary of help from uh, our, our Veterans Affairs uh, system, VAC, Veterans Affairs Canada, um, and I'm grateful for it. But to get it, it is a long, multi-year, tooth and nail fight. <laughs> no, There's nobody to guide you. The, the only way to get the help that you damn well deserve uh, and require is to fight. And mm-hmm. uh, so the veteran community relies on veterans advocates like yourself. And the work that you do is right on mission with Tango Romeo. You save lives and relieve pain by uh, making help accessible. And thank you so much for everything that you do, Steph. Thank you. Please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.